0: Where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, May 13th, we're studying Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. The persecution of the church does not destroy the church. As Christians are scattered from Jerusalem, they take the word of God with them and proclaim it to all. St. Luke focuses our attention particularly on the work of Philip the Evangelist as he travels to Samaria. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Christopher Jackson. Pastor Jackson serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin. Pastor Jackson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thanks for having me on, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We're at a pretty big transition point here in the book of Acts. What
1: should we know as we look at the text we've got for today? Yeah, so we are are coming off of the heels of, of Saul's persecutions of the church. The, the first few verses before uh, the passage that we're taking up uh, talks about Saul's approving of the uh, execution of Stephen and uh, the, the further persecution of the church that seems to have unleashed... Within the Jerusalem populace, uh, an understanding that Christians were fair game. And so there's a persecution on the church at this time. And this actually helps the church to expand. Uh, this is not a curse upon the church, ultimately, but a blessing upon the church that the Lord uses to carry out his intentions for the church to spread out throughout the whole world.
0: That may sound strange to some that persecution, what happens here, is going to be a blessing to the church. How is it that Christians can can say that? I think there's a, there's a saying: the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Is that how it it goes? How how can that be true?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's that the saying: the the blood of the martyrs is the the seed of the church, and and certainly Stephen's testimony in his in his martyrdom is a beautiful expression of faith in the lordship of Jesus Christ and obviously very powerfully moving to uh, the early saints. But there's also maybe another metaphor that we might like to use. I kind of like to use the metaphor of uh, a hot fire being stamped on. You know, We have this image of fire in in Acts, how the, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles as tongues of fire. And here in this portion of Acts we see that in a sense, the the people of Jerusalem, the, the Jewish leaders are trying to stamp out that fire, but instead of stamping it out, instead it's as if it sends sparks going off to the four corners. Right so sparks are flying out from that fire and those sparks are catching in in various parts of the world and today we're going to track one of those sparks we're going to track the spark which is Philip the deacon as he is the initial means by which the gospel is brought to Samaria hmm. So let's begin that
0: text then the way the spark catches going with Philip to Samaria. We're picking up the text in Acts chapter eight, verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I'm going to pause there, Pastor Jackson, because then the rest of the text is going to focus in particular on one person there in this city. Uh, verse four I, I think is is significant, even before we talk particularly about Philip, because it does set the stage for what has happened. The the last text where we left off with Saul ravaging the church, dragging off even women and committing them to prison. If they were Christians may have left us a bit on the edge. What's going to happen here. We see that the book of acts really is, this is the, the Lord sending out his word Mm -hmm. and what may seem to human sensibilities as a a negative thing for the church the Lord is the one who really takes it and uses it for his own good and I think verse 4 is just another reminder that the acts of the apostles well this is the acts
1: of the Lord Mm -hmm. through his Mm -hmm. word Mm -hmm. spreading his church right because who could have anticipated that this was the Lord's plan to execute his mission remember so really uh what we find here is is the fulfillment of what the lord himself jesus proclaimed all the way back in the uh, beginning of Acts where where Jesus says just before his ascension, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here in the, at least this initial verse, now we're going to have um, Samaria come in in the, ne- in the next verse. We, we probably see Judea in view here when it talks about how the uh, how those were scattered are going around preaching the word. Uh, you know, so Jerusalem is located in the Roman province of, of Judea. And so because they couldn't necessarily stay in any one place that makes them easy targets, they're they're going around, but as they're going around, they're preaching the word. And so this is how the Lord saw fit to fulfill this this commission that he gave to the the apostles and uh you know the apostolic band which includes the deacons that they appointed that they're going to be these witnesses and you wouldn't have necessarily anticipated that this would be by means of force but uh this is how the lord works it is that that saul comes about and, and saul is in many ways uh, an agent for the Lord twice, right? So he's an agent for the Lord in his persecution of the church, which then empowers the church to spread the gospel ab- abroad. Eventually, he will come to CNX. He becomes an agent of of the Lord when he's converted, and and therefore becomes as well the the apostle to the Gentiles uh, by means of that. But certainly uh, you couldn't have anticipated that it would be by means of persecution, but certainly we see that this is, this is not the machinations of man, right? This is the Lord bringing about his work in surprising and exciting ways. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I appreciate how you you bring that out with
0: Saul, that even here before his conversion, the Lord is using him to spread the gospel just in a a totally opposite way of what you would think. So I, I think it's a fantastic point. Now,
1: Go ahead, go ahead. No, yeah, so I mean let's let's just talk about let's just expand on that a little bit more, right? So this is this is a lordship of Jesus Christ at work and uh Jesus, you know, sitting, I mean, we just heard about Stephen, right? Who is sitting as the son of man sitting at the right hand of God. Uh that that Jesus is this authoritative figure that he is indeed Lord. And Really, this is the message, and this is getting a little bit outside of our our passage for today, uh, but this is the message of Revelation, even. Revelation is probably the easiest book to read, that Jesus is Lord, not only despite all the terrible things happening in the world, which would seem to be uh, against the purposes of God, but in mysterious ways, God is Jesus is even Lord through these things, and we see Jesus exercising His lordship over and through Saul, even in this circumstance.
0: Well, I do think that this is an important theme that you see in the in the scriptures. The the place where it stands out, and I don't know if I'm able to find the exact verse. But is in the Old Testament term where the Lord Yahweh of Hosts or Yahweh Sabaoth mm-hmm. that the Lord is the Lord of armies, and and when the scriptures speak that way, He is the Lord of armies, even enemy armies. <laughs> and and we studied the book of Judges here on Sharp Iron probably two summers ago now, but there was there's a there's one passage where it makes it very plain that the Lord is directing not only the armies of Israel but also the enemy armies mm-hmm. to to His ends, and it's a, I think a very similar thing happened. Here in the book of Acts, that even with Saul thinking that he's going to accomplish something against the Lord and his church through this persecution, in fact, in a, in a mysterious and marvelous way, the Lord is the one who's actually at work furthering his church, causing his word to grow, even when Saul thinks he's going to get him. I mean, I, I brought this up previously with uh, in Acts chapter four after one of the moments when the, the apostles are persecuted, they pray and they pray from Psalm two. And, and you know, the Psalm two has that picture of the Gentiles plotting against the Lord and the Lord's in heaven laughing. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I see that happening yet again, it, you know, the Lord is going to make use of Saul and what he thinks are plans against the church. The Lord's going to turn that on its head and he's going to cause his word to grow even here.
1: And one of the surprising things that we see is that one of the first, places of conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ is the city of Samaria, right?
0: So, why is that surprising? Take us into some of that context.
1: Yeah. So, verse 15, we see Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. Now, in North America, you know, we kind of have a different way of seeing things. We might say, like, I'm going... Up to Michigan and down to Texas or something like that. Like it's like right. you know, down is south and up is north. It's a very different th- vision in the in the Jewish world, right? Where really you're always going up to Jerusalem, so everything else is down from Jerusalem. So um, so Philip goes down to Samaria, even though Samaria is to the north. And Samaria, there's this long history of tension between Samaritans and the people of Judah and Jerusalem and, and really even the Jews, you might say that the Samaritans were Yahwists and that they believed in Yahweh, but they, they weren't Jews. So let's just kind of go through the history there. So first of all, there's this tension going all the way back to the time immediately after, after Solomon. So, so Solomon finishes up, you know, Solomon uh his his kingship ends and then his his um, ancestors come in behind him and already in solomon t- solomon's time there's this tension because you know, Solomon with his building projects he exacts taxation and forced labor upon the Israelites and um, even while Solomon accomplished some great things at the same time it seemed well we, we know that his um, his his greed and uh, lust and and so on is getting the better of him well it's it's even worse with his descendants and they just they exact these terrible taxations and uh, forced labor upon the people for their various projects and so uh, there's this divided kingdom that comes where there's the kingdom of Israel the ten tribes of Israel to the north and the two tribes to the south which becomes the kingdom of Judah Now, um, this kingdom of Israel in the north sets up two alternative temple sites at a place called Dan and Bethel and so now there's there's this right away there's this tension right where um, you know it it, it seems as if appropriate uh, at least under the Jewish understanding the the right place of the worship of God is the one temple in Jerusalem I mean that's where the Ark of the Covenant is so uh, for example and so just the very fact that these alternative worship sites are set up is is wrong in the eyes of the Jews uh, but. In addition, in these alternative temple sites in Dan and Bethel, they set up idols. Now, there's kind of two senses for idolatry. And so, first of all, there's uh, this problem in that they, they set up idols to Yahweh. So, uh, they, they put up these images of calves in these temple sites, and this is wrong. You're not supposed to depict Yahweh with any created thing. And then, uh, as well, they also, in the in the Kingdom of Israel, introduced worship of false gods. And actually, if you look in the Book of Kings, uh, the Book of Kings seems to attribute the worship of false gods creeping into, uh, creeping into to Judah in large part to the idolatry which was allowed to take place in the northern kingdom of Israel. So that's the beginning of the tensions. And that only really gets worse as, uh, as time goes along. In the time of the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians come in. And they uh, they they take a great number of the populace away from Israel and replace them with settlers from Mesopotamia. We we see this in Second Kings chapter seventeen, and you know certainly they would have brought their false religion as well. A really interesting story where the the people are being attacked by lions, and so the Assyrian emperor actually sends sends uh, Israelite priests back to, uh, back to the kingdom of Israel, that land, what is now known as Samaria in order to, to teach them the law of God and so on. But we see that, yeah, that, that division between the Jews and the people of Samaria, the Samaritans is only heightened at that point. There's some tension as well. Um, between certain sects of the Jews and the Samaritans. So, for example, uh, those who would have followed along with the Pharisaical line would have had problems with uh, the Samaritans' rejection of the expanded canon. So, the Samaritans would have really only accepted the first five books of what we now know as the Old Testament, you know, the Torah, uh, whereas the, the Pharisees had the expanded canon, which was also the canon that Christ accepted, and so, therefore, we accept... Uh, so it's surprising it's surprising that this <clears throat> it's surprising that this place which rejected the appropriate worship of God in Jerusalem, which rejected the appropriate canon the the, the canon of, of Christ uh, becomes this place where there's this joyful reception of the Messiah and they, they gladly come to receive Christ and to understand him as the son of God. So the surprises don't stop coming here.
0: That's right. And, and although to be fair, the surprise is from that earthly perspective. When mm. you look at Jesus own ministry, he has some positive interactions with Samaritans. The The two that come to mind are the woman at the well in John chapter four, and then the, the leper in Luke chapter 17, the, the one who returns is a Samaritan. Yeah. So there were the positive interactions. And then as, as you pointed out already, Jesus did tell his apostles that they would be witnesses. The word would be proclaimed in Samaria. So it's surprising from a human perspective. And yet... From the perspective of the narrative, we should see that this is a part of what Jesus is up to here in the book of Acts. Now, w- one of the ways that this happens in Samaria is Philip goes, and this is, as you point out, Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle, sometimes called Philip the evangelist. He, he becomes important in a couple other narratives, including the, the very next text after this. He goes and he proclaims the word and he also does signs. We've seen signs in the book of Acts. How, how do those things go together,
1: uh, particularly here in Acts chapter 8? Yeah, so we should just be honest about what we see here in Acts, is that in the Apostolic Church, gospel mission was often accompanied by what we might call extraordinary signs of the Spirit. So things such as casting out demons, healings, speaking in tongues is mentioned several times in Acts, though it's not mentioned here. And and so this is an extremely important aspect of... A ministry that was happening at that time. At the same time, there's a few important things for us to remember about the role that these signs played in the ministry of the early church. So the most important thing is to remember that these signs were for the greater purpose of inspiring faith in the words of the gospel. So how is this described there? It says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So these signs are good. They see these signs, but the the much more important thing is that these signs testify and, and gain attention to the word that is being spoken. And we might contrast this with, who uh, an individual who's coming a little bit later we'll talk about this a little bit more Simon the magician he has signs but he doesn't have the gospel and these spiritual gifts are indeed gifts they they come from the power of God and they have this important role to play in the apostolic church but at the same time we have indications from the scripture that there are even greater spiritual gifts than these Extraordinary gifts, these extraordinary signs. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, for example, Paul is talking about various spiritual gifts and he affirms the spiritual gifts that various individuals are given. But at the same time while he acknowledges these and acknowledges these as being from the spirit he yet in first corinthians chapter 13 shows that there are even greater spiritual gifts than such things as being able to speak in tongues or healing or casting out demons and first corinthians chapter 13 it's it's legendary for being the chapter of love, and a lot of times we hear it read at weddings, and then it's appropriate to read it at weddings. And, you know, it's very, uh, a very, you know, sympathetic passage and so on. But the, the greater upshot of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that even while these gifts are good, there are three greater gifts than those. And those spiritual gifts are faith, hope, and love and these are greater for several reasons first of all these are greater because they're accessible and, and in fact are given to every single christian and these are the greatest gifts because it is these gifts which which give true meaning and purpose to any other gift that we might receive from the spirit mm.
0: I'm glad you brought up first Corinthians twelve and eleven or thirteen and and I think this will become important later in the text too as we get to talk more about the giving of the Holy Spirit and what that mm-hmm. means later but even I always like to point out at the beginning of first Corinthians twelve, before Paul begins to speak of the more what you might call spectacular gifts of the Spirit, mm-hmm. even before that, he he says what I think are, are even more foundational words that you know the only way you can say Jesus is Lord is in the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and then you know the flip side no one says Jesus is accursed when he is in the Holy Spirit that 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 too is a foundational matter when it comes to the gift of the Holy Spirit first and foremost the job of the Holy Spirit and that which he does in every Christian is to give him faith. Mm-hmm. And and apart from that other these other gifts as spectacular as they are, if you don't have that from the Holy Spirit, then these other gifts don't even you don't even get to talk about them. Right. And I think I mean so I, I think you know the way that he frames that whole argument and we're not studying first Corinthians 12 and 13 here, but they are important background, the way he frames that whole section I think is really significant so that we don't make the mistake that some Christians do still today of of placing too much emphasis on these signs and not enough on the preaching of the gospel. And right. I think the book of Acts, when we read it in that narrative, or when we read that the narrative we've got in Acts, in light of that, it, it helps keep us more in bounds from, from running in those directions that the spirit wouldn't have us take.
1: Right. And that's, you see this time and time again, that the central thing that the spirit does is emboldens proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that time and time and time in the gospel, or the gospel of Acts, but in, you know, it says it time and time again in the book of Acts, but as well, it says it, uh, we, we see that very clearly here (laughs) in that um, the, these, these, spectacular gifts of the spirit are to uh, arouse faith in the gospel, to help arouse faith in the gospel that Philip is preaching. And we'll see that continue along as we read through um, the rest of Acts here as well.
0: Well, let's go ahead and and pick up the rest of the text because, uh, you know, there is going to be more of this that comes out. So, and we're going to meet a particular person. You've already hinted at him in a little bit. We're picking up again, Acts 9, excuse me, 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That takes us through the end of our text through Acts 8.25. Pastor Jackson, we've got about a minute and a half here before the break. Tell us a little bit about Simon, this man that figures prominently in this
1: part of the narrative. Yeah, so Simon goes by various names that you'll hear in various writings. So sometimes he's known as Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer. He was a subject of really widespread writing in the early church. Uh, the early fathers were fascinated with this man, many of them at least. And uh, so we're going to take up some some of that but as far as the biblical record goes this is all that we have recorded about him we know that he was this wonder worker that was from the region of samaria and uh we know that he was uh you know obviously one of the earliest converts to christianity but also one of the earliest to show great error Mm. Yeah, so we will pick up more
0: of what we learn about Simon the Magician, Simon Magus. Here on the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking Acts chapter 8 with Pastor Christopher Jackson. We'll be right back. Please stick around. (laughs) to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 13th. We're studying Acts chapter 8 verses 4 to 25 with Pastor Christopher Jackson. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin. Pastor Jackson, prior to the break, we introduced Simon, Simon the Magician, he's sometimes called. He's there in this city where Philip has been. And we find a little bit about what he was up to, some signs, wonders. People thought pretty highly of him. What what do we need to to
1: see about Simon before he becomes a Christian? Yeah, so he's he's practicing magic in the city, and the people of Samaria are, in a sense, in his thrall. And they consider him to have these great powers of God. And in fact, in a sense, he's putting himself forward almost as a, a counter Messiah in a sense. in that even though he's not really aware of Christ at this point, you know, he's saying not just that he has the power of God, but he's putting himself forward and, the people pick up on this, and they said, not just that this man has the power of God, but they're saying that he is the power of God that is called great. So it's this very um, self-serving, and I guess what else would you expect, uh, but this this self-serving magic uh, that he is doing in order to to put people in the thrall of of he himself and this is not uncommon throughout the ancient world and actually even today uh, there was a uh, yeah, we this is probably the sort of magic that was done by the the various sorcerers in egypt in the time of moses we have descriptions in the book of Daniel and so on of various magicians and, and sorcerers, pretty widespread kind of practice. And and we see this sort of thing, yeah, even even today. Uh, this is going back quite a while now at this point, about 20, 25 years. But I once saw a presentation by the... Uh, by the, the head of the Lutheran church in Singapore who talked about various magicians who would practice such things in the streets and and more or less through this defraud people of their money, seeking relief from whatever whatever was ailing them or, or they thought was ailing them. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised to see something like this, given the context of of Samaria. You laid out kind of their their mixture of religions that was there earlier. And even what we just heard, that there was the casting out of unclean spirits. All of these things kind of go together where where the gospel's not being proclaimed, where the, the one true God's not being proclaimed. These things sort of go together. And so to see somebody like Simon in this area, taking advantage of the situation for his own, and I would assume financial benefit because that becomes important later in the narrative I don't think
1: that should surprise us too much. But and, then- and even today, I mean, you, uh, so, you, you hear reports from the mission field, uh, for example, in places like Madagascar, where there's a fairly healthy Lutheran presence in Madagascar, and uh, practices of the occult and so on um, are usually accompanied with demonic oppression and, and things of this nature. Mm.
0: So, and this, I think, goes to show the power of God's word, that Philip comes into this place which is reasonably hostile territory to the the one true God and he preaches and people believe including this this Simon this is quite a testimony to the power of God's word when it is preached
1: right and so i mean what's the difference between Simon and Philip right they both have signs yeah. but but Philip has signs and he has the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was the gospel which was the difference between Simon and Philip. And it was the gospel which ultimately carried the day, so much so that Simon himself believes and is baptized and continues with Philip. And yes, he sees these signs and great miracles performed and he's amazed by them. But it's really the gospel which, which brings about this faith, which, which causes people to believe. The, the, the primacy of the word in the ministry of the apostles and, and their co-laborers is just central to the entire book of Acts, and it's central here as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the questions that often arises
0: with Simon, and maybe we just touch on it briefly here, is does he really believe because of what he does later? Sometimes that's a question. So, how do we, how does the narrative, maybe, let's put it that way, how does the narrative classify Simon at this point?
1: So, you know, he's among the number of those who are baptized, right? He's. I think it's pretty clear that he's an insider in in a way, but you know we we can't necessarily judge hearts, and we're not given a a window into his heart at this point necessarily. But as Lutherans, a lot of times we talk about the the invisible church versus the visible church, and I think this is a really helpful distinction that we make. So for those who aren't familiar with this distinction between the invisible church on the one hand and the visible church on the other hand. So the invisible church is what you might say the, the true church. This is the, the, the true body of believers around the world who, who look to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and, and through this have faith in the Holy Trinity and assurance of salvation through so their grace and mercy won by Christ for them on the cross. That's the invisible church and it's in visible because it's it's really only seen by god right we can't look into the hearts of others uh, to know whether or not they're a christian and it's it's a matter of faith that that this band of believers is in the world now on the other hand we talk about the visible church and when we talk about the visible church that's probably what most people you are talking about when they talk about the church right so uh, you know the 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 gathering of people around the Word of God uh, within congregations and uh, so on it's very clear that that Philip or rather that Simon is part of this this visible church right I mean he's baptized he's receiving the teaching of Philip he's sort of this, you know he's on the inside of all of this, whether or not he's a part of the the invisible church. I think is a little bit besides the point to this. Some might look at what he has comes to say a little bit later as evidence that you know he wasn't a true believer. Um, I, I think that's a little bit um, a little bit neither here nor there. But you know it's pretty clearly that he's he's considered among the band of of Christians at this point. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, ultimately we we
0: can't know. I think the way Luke writes it, we should, for the sake of charity, at least assume that he is a Christian, that he does believe there's there doesn't. I mean, yeah. And I, again, as you said, it's beside the point and it's not a question we could ultimately answer. So he's in the he he's clinging to Philip at this point. There's more signs and wonders. And then the apostles hear about this back in Jerusalem. They're going to come to Samaria and see what's going on. And then, well, this is where the text gets pretty interesting. And, and one of the more difficult spots within the book of Acts where, and and I think one that strikes us very strange as Lutherans, because on the one hand, these people have been baptized, but the text says that the Holy spirit has not yet fallen on them. Mm -hmm. Peter back in Acts chapter two said, you can, you're going to be baptized and you will have the Holy spirit. (laughs) So, which I would say is a pretty clear text. What do we make of, of what's going on here with the apostles coming and then the giving of the Holy spirit that happens through their laying on of hands.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's just talk about this choice of apostles first of all, because again, the surprises keep coming. Um, they send to them, Peter and John, right? So again, these are kind of surprising apostles, right? Cause Peter, uh, Peter has this struggle about how to understand Christians who don't come from a Jewish background, right? And we see kind of Peter in process in Acts. And so this is this is surprising in itself. And and also John. Um John was the one who asked Jesus in Luke chapter 9. You know, so so Jesus is uh preparing to uh pass through um you know, Jesus is preparing to pass through. Uh, a Samaritan way, sends messengers on ahead and when they come to the Samaritan village the Samaritans learn that they're going to go up to Jerusalem and so because of this they refuse hospitality to the band of Jesus and when the disciples, James and John learn of it, they said, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? And Jesus turns on them and says, of course not. And they travel on to another village, right? So Mm -hmm. this disciple who had asked Jesus and this is in Luke's recording right in uh, in the gospel of Luke you know should we call lightning down upon the Samaritan village you know he becomes this agent by which you know, hospitality and, and, and inclusion in to the, the people of God is extended to them. I, I think it's, it's very beautiful. This fact, mm-hmm. these facts,
0: I appreciate you bringing that up, Pastor Jackson, because I had forgotten that, that that was John behind that. So that's
1: a, a very good point. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. The son of thunder, right. Becoming the right. apostle of love. So, uh, so anyways, they come down instead of, um, you know, instead of heaping curses on them like they wanted to earlier they instead pray for them that they might receive the holy spirit because they had not fallen on any of them but they'd only been baptized in the name of the lord jesus and boy there's there's several challenges here uh reading this especially in our american context and as well as as lutherans as well um and so there's a few things that just want to uh just want to pull out here is that uh, first of all when it talks about being baptized in the name of Jesus there are some the some within American Christianity, who want to make that into some sort of a formula. So, for example, there are some Pentecostalists that will only baptize in the name of Jesus. We're going to reject that out of hand. This is is really not what it's talking about as a formula, but rather this is, in all likelihood, a means of distinguishing Christian baptism, authentic Christian baptism, from the baptism of John, which is an ongoing distinction that has to be made in the early church. And we see this when Paul shows up at Ephesus in the book of Acts, that you know, he finds there that there's a number who have been baptized with with John the Baptist's baptism, but but not with Trinitarian Christian baptism, baptism in the name of Jesus, and so uh, therefore they need to be rebaptized at that point. Uh, and then as well, this this description of these individuals having received Christian baptism, but yet the Holy spirit has not yet fallen upon them. Now, again, this is a passage where, where some who profess the name of Christ will use this to talk about, you know, kind of stages of salvation. So Pentecostalists might say, okay, you have to believe, but as well, you have to show some sort of extraordinary spiritual gift from the spirit. And this, this, Kind of rubs even us Lutherans this passage of maybe uh, this this sounds a little bit awkward to us sometimes because this is not the usual way that we talk about the role of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. So you know, for example, in the explanation to the third article of the Apostles' Creed, uh, we say, you know, I cannot by my own reason or strength come to the Lord Jesus Christ or believe in him, but the spirit has enlightened me with his gifts and called me by the gospel. And in our understanding, people cannot believe unless they have unless the spirit leads them to belief and they cannot and that the baptism as it is the the conference of the word of god that that is a means of grace the spirit is there as well doing his work to 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 rouse us to faith and to strengthen our faith so we wouldn't divide you know the spirit from baptism as well Uh, so this this strikes us maybe a little bit odd but it's important for us to understand that this passage is not saying that belief is possible apart from the spirit that's not what it's saying but this probably reflects a way of speaking in the early church which would talk of being in the spirit as when various external manifestations of the spirit are occurring so Maybe a good example of this would be once again in the book of Revelation. So, in the introduction to the book of Revelation, John there says, "You know, I was uh, on the island of Patmos and I was in the Spirit." Now, what is he saying when he's saying that he's in the Spirit? Is he saying that outside of this he doesn't have the Spirit? No, he's just saying that the the Spirit was being manifested in him as the Spirit led him to to write the book of revelation and we actually even have a an echo of this way of talking even within our own lutheran liturgy so if you're familiar with like the old you know 515 in the lutheran hymnal and now it's divine service three in lutheran service book uh there's the response the lord be with you or lord be yeah the lord be with you and with thy spirit Right, so when we're saying with thy spirit, in in a sense, what we're saying to the pastor at that point is that uh, he is the agent of the spirit, as the spirit's power is being made manifest as he proclaims the gospel and administers the sacrament. So. Most of the time in Acts, when it talks about being in the spirit or the spirit falling upon them, it's talking about the the manifestations of the spirit's power. And most of the time, it's talking about boldness to proclaim the gospel. Uh, But in whatever sense the Christians of Samaria receive the spirit, whether this is through... Maybe it was uh, being able to cast out demons, or to speak in tongues, or to uh, or to heal. It doesn't say what the manifestation of the spirit was. Maybe it was something much more ordinary. You know, maybe it was a greater sense of love of one for the other. Maybe this was them forgiving each other their sins and letting. Uh, bitterness and and discord uh, fall away from them. And I think that's actually suggestive because, you know, how is Simon uh, being described as one who's given over to bitterness? You know, maybe this was proclam- boldness to reclaim the gospel to others and a, and a missionary zeal to, to spread the gospel. We're not sure. It doesn't say exactly what the manifestations of the Spirit were there, but it was... It was discernible; it could be seen how the spirit was working, and it was impressive. So much so that Simon Magus wanted a little bit of it,
0: right? And that's that's where the narrative takes us. I do appreciate your explanation, Pastor Jackson, and then the the way that you you help us to avoid the errors that are inherent. and And I think that one of the primary ones is somehow that that this t- text somehow plays baptism and the Holy Spirit against each other. And that's not the point. Right. And, and I think you made that, that case very well. We don't want to fall into that error. These these Christians hadn't received anything less than a full Christian baptism. Now the apostles are coming and this gift of the Holy Spirit is very much like what happens on the day of Pentecost. You know, The disciples had the Holy Spirit. They believed in Jesus. But here was this manifestation of the Spirit on that day of Pentecost for the sake of proclaiming the gospel, drawing the attention of people so they would hear it. Something similar seems to be happening here, but we make the wrong move if we try to play baptism
1: of the Holy Spirit against each other. Right. And and so I'm not going to say that this is definitely the case, but I, I think pre- that maybe where the text would lead us um, in, a, in a way that I think that is... That is to me the most attractive way of seeing this is that these you know Peter and John who these old enemies of the samaritans right these are these are jews through and through so much so that John was even willing to call lightning down upon a, a village of the samaritans these become agents of reconciliation whereby you know these people these people from two different opposing people groups are reconciled and and brought into communion one with another and i think that that's that's right in line with what we see in the beginning of acts right where parthians and medes and elamites and so on are are brought into one ship as one people as a brotherhood through the gospel of the lord jesus christ that to me i right. think and is I the think- most powerful manifestation of the spirit at work there
0: Yes, and I think a very key theme certainly that's going to come keep coming up in the book of Acts is as eventually we get to the Gentiles being made a part of this too. I mean, that's that theme that this is all one church being brought together in the Lord Jesus. That that's going to an important theme, and and I think certainly something to be emphasized here as the Samaritans are brought in. Now we've got about seven and a half minutes, just so you're aware of that, Pastor Jackson. We we need to talk about Simon, the sin that he commits, and then the way that Peter responds to him. So. Take us into to Simon. This is where he becomes infamous, I suppose.
1: Yeah. So so Simon, he he sees this power that the apostles have, and he wants some of that, right? So he he wants that power, and so he offers the apostles money in order to obtain it, and this has become known as the the sin of simony. And, and simony is um, a sin in which, uh, in which, perhaps you might say, position within the church is purchased, or even what God intends to be given as free gift is attempted to be you know, bought and sold like a commodity. So, you know, throughout the history of the church, there have been times in which People have tried to uh, to gain authority within the church by means of, of purchasing it for whatever kinds of worldly gain this might get them. This was pretty common in the Middle Ages when the church had a great deal of uh, of temporal power. Um, but I think, as uh, especially as um, I think, there's a really great Reformation point here. Is that Simon was attempting to purchase for himself and for his own gain that which God was offering freely. And so, this was, you might even go so far as to say that what God was offering by means of grace and by means of mercy, Simon was, uh, was attempting to receive himself by means of works. And so I think this is in a, it's a kind of a hidden Reformation passage. I think this is a great Reformation passage. And, and certainly what do we see in the Middle Ages, but people trying to gain favor with God uh, by means of, of, of the coin, right? As soon as the coin and the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs. That's not exactly what we see here, but it's certainly a related sin to what we see Simon doing here. Yeah, so here we are celebrating Reformation in the month of May
0: with, <laughs> with Peter and John as they preach. And I, I think that's a helpful comparison because it does help us to see why Peter responds as harshly as he does. I mean, this is this is a pretty striking preaching of the law oh my goodness. that Peter gives.
1: Would you ever preach this way from the pulpit?
0: I <laughs> I, I probably should. I probably uh, should too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know that I have. I probably should.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter, you know what he's saying there? He's saying, to hell with you and your money. That's, that's what he's saying to Peter. To hell with you and your money. Um, this is... As stern of preaching of the law as, as it could possibly come. And, and certainly this is the case, right? That if we attempt to, to, to purchase our salvation by means of our works, that is only going to lead to hell. That is, that is not the route to heaven. The route to heaven is the route of God's grace and mercy, what, what God intends to give as gift. And yet, at the same time, uh, we see that uh, we see that despite this, that the gospel of the Lord is still clearly at work here. So we see that that Simon gives a Simon gives a, a an act of repentance, you might say. So he calls Peter calls Simon to repentance, and uh, Simon asks, you know. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Uh, so there's there's maybe a, a notion of repentance there, um, but despite this preaching of the law, we see that the gospel is still central. Uh, the Peter and James, or rather Peter and John, go along there. From Samaria, and uh, after they had testified and spoken where the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And once again, we see that the gospel ministry is at the heart and, and center of this. That these various spiritual signs and powers, as good as they are, that that really they serve the ultimate goal of of preaching. The gospel, which is what the apostles are glad to do throughout the rest of Samaria.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. The that word that the Lord promised back in Acts one eight that the gospel is going to and be preached in Samaria. He is fulfilling that promise here with about two minutes, Pastor Jackson. Help us to to wrap this text up as we see the word of the Lord going out. What's the good news for us as Christians today?
1: Yeah, I mean the good news for Christians today is is multifaceted. First of all, we can have the sure and certain confidence that the Lord is continuing to do his work even in ways that might confound us. I think one of the greatest difficulties for Christians in America today is that we we don't live in a time of full-on oppression as the as the time of the apostles in Jerusalem. But we certainly do see that American culture has turned its back upon Christianity and the church. And our our churches aren't as full as they once were. We don't have the kind of cultural capital and cachet that we once did. We don't have the surrounding societal support. That in order to be a good American, you have to be a good church-going Christian, and that can lead, I think, and does lead, a lot of Christians to have a great deal of anxiety, and and while certainly, in many ways, that might not be good for the culture, uh, ultimately, I'm certain that it will be good for the church. The Lord will use this time in whatever way he sees fit to strengthen and encourage the church and to, to do his work. And the Lord has not ceased to keep his promise to to spread the gospel around the world. Uh, even while our culture in some ways has turned against the gospel, yet the gospel is being readily embraced throughout africa throughout asia and we rejoice to see that jesus is continuing to keep his promise that the witness of him as lord and savior the one through whom our forgiveness of sins has been one through whom eternal salvation has been given through his death and his resurrection that that witness that god that gospel message is continuing to go on from judea to samaria and on to the ends of the earth
0: Pastor Christopher Jackson is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin, helping us today with Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Pastor Jackson, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Pastor Apple.
0: I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Acts, send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week we